so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. God is a holy God, and He is serious about us walking in holiness. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. The Bible says, woe to those who isolate themselves or who don't have anyone there to pick them up when they fall down. The gospel hope is that we believe in a God who is engaged with His Son. I have had to come to terms with the fact that I live in a broken world and I live in a broken body. What if the one thing that we're praying for God to take away is the one thing He's using to make us more like Jesus. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. My name is Trillia Newbell. I'm the Director of Community Outreach here at the ERLC. Today we are going to be talking about suicide, and I have brought on my new friend, Albert Shi. He is a senior editor for InterVarsity Press. He has also written a book called Grieving a Suicide. So welcome to the podcast, Al. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I want to start by just talking about your book, and I want you to tell us as much as you want about your story and what led you to write Grieving a Suicide. Well, the book uh, was just re-released this past summer of 2017, uh, and it came about because suicide leaves behind, on average, between six to ten immediate survivors, loved ones, spouses, children, parents. And so that's hundreds of thousands of people every year that are going through this particular kind of grief. And and I am one of those people. Um, my father was 58 years old at the time. He was an electrical engineer, PhD, brilliant man. But one day he had a stroke. And while he survived the stroke, it left him partly debilitated on the left side of his body. And he started doing rehab and was making some progress. But the side effect of the stroke is that he fell into a clinical depression. Uh, mm. And after some months, he felt like life was meaningless. He saw no purpose, no hope. He felt that he could not go on. And so three months after the stroke, uh, he went into his room one night, closed the door, and took his own life. Now, that story, which is so hard, and as you've just mentioned, is a story or a similar story of so many people. And right. my question is, grieving a suicide that you said it was some years ago what is the process that you went through and i'm i'm assuming maybe still going through as you right. think about your father could you give those who maybe haven't experienced this a look and glimpse into 
what this grieving process could look like. Right. For this particular kind of grief, it's what counselors call a complicated grief or a complicated bereavement because there's actually two dynamics going on at once. One is the normal grief of losing a loved one, and that happens regardless of how you lose the loved one, cancer, car accident, whatever. Uh, But then on top of that is the additional layer of trauma, and a suicide has a traumatic impact on the grievers, the loved ones, in in much the same way that war does on soldiers with PTSD or somebody who has experienced a terrorist attack or some significant event that traumatizes us and fractures our our psyche and our soul in, in various ways. And so we are dealing with two realities, trauma and grief. And mm. and the grief is hard enough as it is, as anyone who's lost any loved one knows. But then the trauma heightens it and intensifies the grief and can make it even more unbearable. Uh, so there are th- the normal so-called stages of grief don't necessarily apply in this kind of a, of a loss. Uh, there's sadness, of course, and and uh, deep emotional pain. But then on top of that, there's stigma and mm. shame, especially in some conservative Christian circles where you don't talk about things like suicide, you don't talk about mental illness or depression. There's also a layer of survivor's guilt uh, mm. that many times the loved ones think, why didn't I see this coming? Why didn't I do something to prevent this? I must, I, it might be my fault. I should have seen the signs. And there's tremendous survivor's guilt. Uh, my mom is a nurse, and she was taking care of my dad after, uh, after his stroke. And she did all the right things. She saw the signs of depression. She got uh, weapons out of the house. She even got him to the hospital for observation. Hmm. But even so, uh, she wasn't able to prevent the suicide. Uh, And so she felt tremendous survivor's guilt as a nurse, as a wife, as a caregiver for that. Hmm. This series that we are doing is called How to Handle. And you mentioned that people can feel shame and and guilt as a result of a suicide. And I haven't personally experienced, but I know someone who has, um, I haven't experienced the guilt, I'll say, but the question will be, what could I have done? What could I have done to prevent this? How does someone overcome that sense of guilt when it really is, it's out of their immediate control? What what I often tell people is that there are different two different kinds of guilt. There's true guilt and there's false guilt. Hmm. True guilt is when we have committed some sort of wrong, some sort of sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin, and we feel guilt, and that that's true guilt. That's real guilt. But false guilt are guilt feelings that seem like guilt but aren't really true guilt, that we have not committed the wrong. Uh, and it is really a way of uh, the enemy shaming us and making us think that we've done something wrong when we haven't. And as I've talked to suicide survivors over and over again, they say, please let others know it is not your fault. Mm. This is the number one thing that people uh, say that they want others who have gone through this loss to know. It is not your fault. You are not ultimately responsible for your loved one's choice. Uh, They made this choice, and their choice may well have been distorted by mental illness and depression. Uh, So, but do not own that uh, burden of feeling like you could have done something to prevent this. In some cases you can, but in many cases it was beyond our control and it is a false guilt to feel like it is on you. 
No, that's really good and incredibly helpful. So we understand why it's important to you. Why is this topic important for the church to consider? Well, the the church is affected by depression and suicide just as much as the general population. Uh, there's there's really no statistical difference. Um, and so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling uh, with, with mental illness, with depression. And even those that aren't necessarily in clinical depression um, fe- feel uh, suicidal ideation at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if pressures happen, if there are relational breakups or job reversals or any number of things. And so as part of a general pro-life ethic, uh, I think it's important for Christians to help preserve life, to give people hope, to, to help people see that there are resources available for them when they are struggling. And so in recent years, I think the church has gotten better a little at, at uh, talking about these kinds of issues. Uh, in 2013, Kay and Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, mm-hmm. they lost their son, Matthew, to suicide after many years of struggling with bipolar and mental illness. And that was the most devastating experience uh, that they had gone through in their in their exper- ministry. But one of the side effects or results is that Kay started a mental health ministry at Saddleback and started holding conferences and helping the church be more aware of mental health issues and needs. And People have been saved through their ministry uh, to help people with awareness, to help people look for warning signs, to get people resources and help. Uh, so I, I'm grateful that the church, I think, is in a slightly better place, uh, even though suicide is still very prevalent. All, all the uh, trend lines are negative as far as suicide rates have increased over the last 15 years in almost every demographic, especially uh, young women teens. and girls, yeah. Yeah, teen girls. And middle-aged men, mm. uh, middle-aged white men often. So the the need is significant. And so the church needs to be aware and involved and to be um, to help one another um, minister to those in, that are struggling. Mm. No, that's really good. And I'm glad that you mentioned Kay Warren and the resources that they are building there. Are there other resources that you're seeing to help equip the church? Because I think we're, we have a few dynamics here. We have people who they, they themselves are in the church struggling. And so we need to be able to address depression, anxiety, just a whole host of things that could lead to drug abuse, lead to this end. And then there are those who, like yourself and myself, I've, I have grieved suicides, have experienced um, a loved one who've been lost. So how do we equip the church? Are there other resources that, that churches could be on the lookout for? Uh, I should first give Kay Warren's website. It's Hope for Mental Health and Hope for Number Four Mental Health. Just Google that and Kay Warren, you should be able to find it. And she has a whole bunch of resources available. Also, I'd like to recommend the book Preventing Suicide by Karen Mason. It's a book about how churches and counselors and pastors can can help people who are struggling at, mm. at various levels, uh, pastorally, theologically, but also practically in terms of uh, support. And one encouraging sign I see in the church in recent years is that the church is a little bit better in not being so skeptical of counseling and psychology yes. and medicine and antidepressants. They're, they're, in some circles, people are still sometimes skeptical. I think Christians tend to be 
overly spiritual. It's like, oh, if you just pray more, if you believe more, and, and you'll be able to get through it. But that's not necessarily the case. It, often it is biochemical things in our brain or other things going on. And so we can learn to see antidepressants and medicine as good gifts from God. I'm grateful for researchers and doctors that have researched this and have found resources that can help us. And that could be medicine, it could be counseling and psychology. Uh, I am so grateful for the ministries of Christian counselors and Christian therapists that can help walk through uh, these struggles with with people. Um, So and I do think that the church is is more aware that there are resources available. Uh, mm-hmm. When they see people struggling, there are counseling uh, ministries and, and uh, hotlines and so on. Right. Scripture actually gives us an example of suicide prevention. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, and an earthquake happens, and they're released, uh, and the Philippian jailer, is is about to kill himself because mm. he knows he'll be held responsible. So he draws his sword. He's about to take his own life. But Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. We are all here. He intervenes in the jailer's life. He says, we are here. We are here for you. Don't take your life. And he leads the jailer and his whole household to Christ and gives him new life and new hope. Mm. And we can do the same. When we see people at risk, when we see people who are in danger of self-harm, self-injury, uh, uh, suicidal t- thinking and attempts, we can say, don't harm yourself. We are here for you. Mm. And we can direct them to to pastors and friends and counselors. There's suicide hotlines. Uh, 1-800-SUICIDE is an easy one to remember. Um, or in an emergency, 911 or the police. It is better to intervene uh, and make sure that people have help available than to not. Mm, that's um, really encouraging and powerful and challenging. And and thank you for bringing in scripture. I, I think that's, we will all go back and read that and just to read that account because I don't, I don't know if I've actually seen it, seen it for what it was. And so thank you for drawing attention to that. So I guess my question in regards to that, you said that we, people need help and we need to intervene. What do you do when you receive significant, I'm going to use the word pushback, a resistance to that intervention, resistance to help. Because I imagine that for some people, they come to an end and it's done. But but others, maybe maybe they there is this cry for help, but they just are resistant. So how do you encourage people to persistently intervene or do you? So what what are your thoughts there? It, it does depend on the person and the personality. Sure. But one of the insights from Karen Mason's book, Preventing Suicide, is that many people who are at risk for suicide want to be rescued. Mm. Uh, they want to have people reach out to them. They may not articulate it as such, uh, but often what happens in suicidal ideation is the struggle between the desire to die and the desire to live. And when the desire to die outweighs the desire to live, that's when suicide happens. But we can either reduce the desire to die or to increase the desire to live and to give people greater coping mechanisms to deal with the pain. You can either reduce someone's pain or you can give people greater resources to deal with their pain. And so in that category, that's where the church comes in and to give people resources to say, you are not alone. Ultimately, we 
we as the body of Christ, we know we are not alone in this. We are not uh, Lone Ranger Christians. Right. And we are not meant to go through life alone. And so when we or others are struggling, we need to say, okay, I, I don't know what's going on here, but there are others who can help you. I can help you. Others can help you. We can walk through this together. Um, often in a, uh, in a family dynamic, there are – sometimes it needs to come from a certain kind of person. Uh, some people will listen to some people more than others. Uh, so it, t- it does take discernment and pastoral care to, to identify what the right approach is. So I can't recommend a one-size-fits-all. Absolutely. Uh, but just so that people are aware that there are trained professionals, um, there are people who work with mental health struggles all the time, and they can help speak into these kinds of situations. No, that's, that's great and wise advice. And, and one of the things you keep saying, um, you've mentioned counseling, getting help. You've mentioned the church and community. You've mentioned um, coming alongside. So it sounds like relationship and people. Um, they're a community mm-hmm. of people coming alongside is essentially important in this topic, that people aren't walking out their faith alone, and people aren't walking out their life alone, that right. people are, are walking with others. And um, being transparent and being vulnerable and honest about their need for help. And then we, or you, if you're, if you're listening, must be available and willing to help. So it does sound, it sounds like an element of community that is needed and people. And I, I have heard this. We've done this podcast several times, um, not on this topic, but on other topics. And that call to community comes up in every single <laughs> episode. We are not supposed to live isolated. And right. um, we, I hope that anyone listening in who maybe you struggle with, with these thoughts of suicide and um, you have struggled to find a way to articulate it, you do not have to walk alone. And there are people who want to care for you either, either through the hotline or your local church. And so I'm, I'm praying that if there is anyone, which there will be, there's, there's no doubt that there's someone who's listening who has struggled with these thoughts. I, I'm praying that you, you hear this call to community and that people want to love and serve you. And with that, Al, would you help us put a, a gospel framework to this conversation? Is there gospel yes. hope? Oh, yes. Um, I, let me say that we both have a God-shaped hole in all of us and also a people-shaped hole. And right. and so we fill the people-shaped hole with community, but we need to fill the God-shaped hole with, with God, with Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel story, the Christian story, is that God enters into our lives even at the starkest, most despairing places when God seems most absent when we are in grief, when we are at loss, that's when he's actually most present. And one of the stories that encourages me most is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the story of the two disciples walking home after the Passover on the road to Emmaus. They have just lost Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been killed, and they are in grief. And they are walking, and they're wondering, how could this have happened? What do we make of it? How do we go on? And in their pain and in their grief, a stranger comes alongside and joins them on the road, starts talking with them. They invite him into the, their home. They break bread with him, and they recognize, oh, it's Jesus. Mm. And the beauty of it is that when 
life seems most despairing, when life seems most tragic, he's actually present with us. Hmm. Even in the absence, that's when God is present and reveals himself to us. Hmm. It's true. And I, I thank you for that just sweet reminder, um, just to remember that God is with us. He's Emmanuel, yeah. Jesus, the God-man with us is is an encouragement even to my heart. So I'm praying that it is the same. Is there any last thing that you would like to say to our listeners? You are not alone. Uh, and God walks with us, whether you're grieving a suicide, whether you're struggling with depression, you are not alone in this struggle. Uh, and life is worth living. Uh, mm. Sometimes we wonder why is the world so painful. Um, but I am grateful that Jesus entered into this world of pain, that he experienced the pain of the world by becoming human and suffering himself, dying on a cross. But he made a way through it. And on the other side of the crucifixion is resurrection. Mm. And so for the Christian, death does not have the final word, that there is hope and new life on the other side. Well, thank you so much, Al. That is our only hope, and I just am encouraged, and I'm prayerful that this will encourage in others, others who are listening. We have been talking to Al She, Albert She. He is the author of Grieving a Suicide, and he's also an editor at IVP. Al, thank you again. Thanks for having me. All right, you have been listening to the ERLC podcast. I am. Trillia Newbell, and I hope that you will listen in to more episodes to come. Thank you.